Welcome to Your Partner in Success Radio, a program that values the potential of knowledge, collaboration, and growth. The show is hosted by Denise Griffiths, who is known as an intensely curious nerd in stilettos. Each Wednesday, she is joined by co-host Ben Gay III, a renowned figure in the sales world. Ben is recognized for introducing The Closers, one of the most popular and powerful sales training materials ever produced. Having been mentored by Dr. Napoleon Hill himself, Ben has gained a wealth of knowledge in sales and life. Throughout the show, Denise and Ben delve into the world of sales, entrepreneurship, and success, exploring Ben's vast experience from guiding and mentoring countless professionals to achieve unparalleled success in their careers. Together, they offer unmatched guidance to listeners seeking success in their professional endeavors. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of the Closers Inner Circle Podcast hosted by Denise Griffiths and Ben Gay on Your Partner in Success Radio. Now, my co-host, Ben Gay III, is known for his comprehensive sales training materials, including the Closers series. I have both of the Well, there's five, five or six books, I think, but two of them live in my entrepreneurial library. Now, these are a collection of sales training books that provide practical guidance and strategies for sales professionals who are looking to improve their skills and close more deals. The series is highly regarded in the sales industry and has been used by countless individuals to enhance their sales techniques. In fact, they're also known as the sales Bibles. Mm-hmm. So the series consists of several volumes with each book focusing on specific mm-hmm. aspects of the sales process and in the techniques and some of the key titles, the two that I happen to own were written by Ben, the closers part one, which is often considered the cornerstone of the series. It covers fundamental sales principles, such as prospecting, building rapport, handling objections, and most importantly, closing the sale. The closers part two, though, is my favorite. And I think it's Ben's favorite book as well. That is building on the foundation of the, the first book, but it delves deeper into advanced sales strategies, including negotiation techniques, dealing with difficult customers, and maximizing sales opportunities. And I do have these books front and center in my entrepreneurial library, as I mentioned. And I dig into the closers part two multiple times a week, even though I have read it cover to cover over the years. But what I really want to do today is go down memory lane with Ben and get him to share some stories about the truly remarkable figures that he has worked with over the years. Dr. Napoleon Hill and the late Zig Ziglar come immediately to mind. Good morning, Ben. You are on the hot seat. Well, I'd rather know know the place I'd rather be. Oh, good. So I'm talking about selling and and, uh, lessons learned and so on. So it's a pleasure. And you sound better than, well, you sounded great last time, but you were telling me how your throat was bothering you. You sound okay. Have you recovered? Oh, I was miserable last week, and I'm still a little bit scratchy today, but I'm powering through because I don't want you to yell at me again. <laughs> yeah, I was really harsh with you. You were. <laughs> I was distraught. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got some questions that uh, a friend submitted. Uh, he's attended several of our seminars, lives in Thailand. But he's a Placerville boy, Placerville, California, where I am, and went to school with Gigi. His name's Dean Garrison, and he's a psychologist and one of those 
brainy people, but somehow he maintained his personality. But he he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said in an email, I think the listeners to your show would benefit from knowing some of the uh, strange things or, uh, you know, bad things that have happened to you that you've learned from instead of just the, the good stuff. So I thought, well, that's good. We'll have a therapy session today. Uh, and see, we, and I have to tell the audience, Ben and I don't talk about these things. I write them up and I dump them in it. But he always yeah. shows up thinking along. I think we're we've got mind melding going on or something because you always come up with exactly what I was thinking. In fact, David Brown, uh, the businessman answer guy, he's going to be my guest on Friday. And I was he was saying, ask him some questions about Lompoc and ask him questions about the, just exactly what you're talking about. Well, happy to do it. As I, I have a rule. I'll answer any question that the questionnaire is uh, brave enough to ask. Oh, boy. And, and Well, usually that protects me because people are too polite. <laughs> yes, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, as I was saying that, I thought, well, that might be a mistake. Uh, but, right. and, and I hope David's listening. Hello, David. He's one of my favorite folks. I met him years ago with a, at a Tony Rubloski, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, mm-hmm. uh, seminar. Yes. And uh, met several people there who have become good friends, which, by the way, is one of the benefits of being in seminars, whether you're leading them or attending them or what have you. I don't think I've ever been in a seminar for more than, a, you know, sometimes you dart in, dart out, and you're back on the plane and you don't meet many people. But usually I'm the first person in the room. I, I know the janitors in every major hotel in America and to a lesser degree around the English-speaking world. And uh, and I I know it's time to go home when I hear the vacuum cleaners running at the end of the seminar and session. So I, I spend time with the people. I find I can teach them more and I can learn more talking with the, the regular folks and getting down to what's important to them, which is how I met David Brown and while we remain such good friends, although we've only spent a total of about three days together in our lives. But he is a special guy and smarter than hell. He is, and he and I are partnering together on something that will be launched pretty quickly. And I'm very excited about that. But I'm glad you mentioned that you're the first one in, the first one out. You have traveled extensively, and you've encountered various cultures. And you and I were talking about that in the virtual green room just a little bit ago, because I had a very interesting weekend speaking with Saudi Saudi Arabian investors. It was a fascinating conversation. I'm still not sure why I was in the room, but I was. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, I'm asking questions from a podcast perspective that actually turned out to be something that nobody had really thought of when they were preparing for this meeting. So you never know who's going to bring what, but while you're wandering around these various cultures, do you have any anecdotes about how cultural differences have influenced your approach to sales and or mentorship? Because I know you have a heck of a mentorship program. Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, in that I come with my preconceived notions, no matter how hard I try not to. You know, the the French are, don't like Americans. Not true. It, they may not like Americans in general, <laughs> but 
but I have dear friends who are French. And so we just had to get to know each other. Canadians are dull. Actually, Canadians have a raucous sense of humor. They do. You, yeah, but you have to sort of draw it out. You know, I love the old Canadian jokes. You know, how do you get 400 drunken, uh, 40 drunken Canadians out of a swimming pool? Answer, you ask them to get out. But you have to be polite. <laughs> yeah, but they go. So there's those surface things, sure. And I've worked in many places through translators, which I love, by the way. It gives you time to think. I say so-and-so, then the translator says it. And uh, during that time, I can listen, watch the reaction of the crowd and so on. So I, I came, there was a period of, in my life where I traveled with a guy named Leo LeBlanc. And in four or five languages, he was my translator. And then after that tour broke off and I was back on my own again, I felt sort of naked and alone without Leo. Because Leo is supposed to say this, and then that gives me time to think, and and so on. But by and large, people are people, no matter where you go in the world. Um, there are, uh, you know, cultural things. The Chinese, for instance, are a little uh, more brusque, uh, for lack of a better word, and they are here in the United States. When running a restaurant or somewhere, I always kid with them. I said, "Don't you know? I'm just trying to order some egg foo young. Don't yell at me." Yeah. And <laughs> right. I'm thinking San Francisco, those people are rude. Yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm trying to eat. But again, I always break through and wind up being close friends with them. Although we keep up the uh, the vaudeville routine of you're loud and pushy and, and I'm a sweet Southern boy and so on. And we both know better about both things. So it's not really as profound as you might think, uh, or somebody who hasn't traveled a lot might think. Uh, the Norwegians, uh, some of my favorite people in the world, because I've been there many times, uh, the Norwegians have, when I first went there, I needed a translator. I forget who it was. It might have been Leo LeBlanc. Uh, that was years ago. Now when you go and start talking slow, as we Americans do, you know, where is the bathroom? <laughs> they do that because I'm in Cajun country and most people, when, they, when you come across any border, where you come from Texas, you're coming from wherever you're coming, you've crossed into a whole new country. Yep. And I will listen to people and they're talking really slowly and really loudly. And the Cajuns just looking at them and looking at me and we're shrugging our shoulders. It's like, <laughs> yeah, why, why are they talking slow? Okay. I'm not stupid. And why are yeah, they I'm, yelling? I'm, I'm not, not hard deaf. of hearing. Right. It's very common here. And, you know, I forget that that happens until I come across it. Oh, yeah. The, but it is a hard accent to understand. It, it. I'll give them that. It is difficult. In fact, when I first came here, I remember asking my husband, what language is that? And he said, that's English. I said, no, uh-uh, nope. That is not English. It was. But it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before. We were a sidewalk. I may have told you this. I've told somebody recently. Hopefully it wasn't you on the on the air. Doesn't matter. We, Keep we talking. In, yeah, we were in Paris and stopped in a little sidewalk cafe that was serving uh, sandwiches. And I just wanted something simple. I'd had all the snails I needed for a while and uh, fancy French food. So I go up to the 
glass counter. I'm standing on the sidewalk and I said, I would like, and I, I, <laughs> I did my air uh, pantomime of a, of a sourdough loaf. Uh, a baguette. With, it's with not a loaf, ham, it's a baguette. <laughs> yeah, with ham and how you say cheese. Oh. And this guy says, so you want a ham and cheese on sourdough? And I yes, said, what? Please. He said, I'm from Boston. U S O B. So I've been caught up in it a few times. But to answer your basic question, yes, they are different on the surface. Generally speaking, beneath the surface, we're all the same. And you just have to get through this the stated obvious. I was telling you in the green room, I had a guy come up to me at a seminar in full Sikh regalia, white turban, white robe, white beard, very nice guy. And he said, Mr. Gay, I'm having trouble breaking through and making connections. Uh, do you know why and how I can solve it? I said, well, one, ignorant Americans think you're a terrorist. They don't know you're a Sikh, the good guys. And uh, so you've got to we develop an opening line and his opening line became, and he said it worked perfectly for the last time I talked to him several years ago. Hi, my name is, I won't use his name. A, I can't pronounce it. And B, uh, I don't have his permission, uh, but hi, my name is so-and-so. You may relax. I am not a terrorist. I'm oh. a Sikh. I'm a Sikh. Right. Everybody laughs. As J. Douglas Edwards said, if you have a built-in objection, bring it up first and brag about it. Everybody laughs. Everybody relaxes. And he said, from that moment on, it's just a normal relationship and sales presentation. So, And that but, is true. I mean, we look, people say, oh, you're not supposed to judge. Nonsense. We have to judge everything, whether we're in danger, whether somebody is going to be decent around us. We are constantly judging. We're constantly looking and figuring out what's going on. I mean, yeah. you know, that's why flight or fight is so important. We have to judge. Now, do we have to be incredibly biased or racist? No, but we do have to be, you know, we have to judge what's going on around us. So, yeah, get it out of the way. I absolutely believe that to be true. Well, I say that most sales are made or made loss or heavily affected in the first 10 to 15 seconds of an encounter. And the reason is exactly what you're talking about. They're looking at you and running you through their computer-like brain for anybody they've ever met that looks like you, talks like you, walks like you, dresses like you, etc. And if those experiences are bad, you got trouble. And mm -hmm. you've got to be aware of it and dig out of that hole. I use humor. Uh, but... Somehow you got to get know there's probably a hole, and then you've got to uh, get out of it. Or they look at you and hug you and say, "You look just like my." I used to get uncle. I'm getting grandfather now. You look just like my grandfather, and I just love him more than anybody in the world. That's fine. That came in the first ten to fifteen seconds when they were judging me, and so far, that was a good judgment. It worked to my advantage. So yes, people are prejudicial. People say, you're from the South, are you a bigot? Yes, I am bigoted against bad behavior. Now, whether whether you're black, white, tan, red, yellow, I don't care beyond that. I judge people on their behavior 
how they conduct themselves, how they treat other people. My father would never hire anyone until he took them to a lunch or dinner or two. And he studied carefully how they treated the servers, the hired help. And if they were dismissive of them, he decided that they would probably be dismissive of dad's clients or customers or what have you. And it was, a real, you know, snapping at somebody because you didn't get your bread on time was a real good way to lose a career. Uh, and he'd never say anything. He'd just say, well, I'll, you know, I'll be in touch with you. <laughs> or as he, said, yeah, as he said to somebody one day who already worked for him but was going to get fired, how long have you worked for us, not counting tomorrow? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I like your dad. <laughs> That was a, a quick, another one off the subject, but it was cute. I had a friend, Cliff Beeks. I worked with him at Macy's, and we became buddies. He was older than I was, married, had a kid. I was still running around. But uh, one day he came over to the house. We were going to play golf or tennis or something. So when Dad came out to go play golf, Cliff was sitting at the breakfast table having breakfast. And dad went and did whatever he did. And we went and did whatever we did. And then we came back to the house for lunch. And dad, after nine holes or 18 holes or something, came in for lunch. And there's Cliff sitting there eating lunch. And then we went on our way. He went on his way at the end of the day uh, with golf and tennis under our belt. Dad came in. There's Cliff Big sitting there getting ready for dinner. And dad said, Cliff, I instinctively like you. I want you to come by frequently. And Cliff said, well, thank you, Mr. Gay. He said, ah, there's a difference between frequently and constantly. Yeah. Three meals <laughs> a day is not something yeah. you have earned. Yeah. Uh, the last time I talked to Cliff, which was years ago, he said, do you remember that time at your house? I said, frequently and constantly. He said, that's it. I've never had anybody talk to me that way before. So. You make your judgments uh, right or wrong. Uh, I'm, I'm quick to react to what I perceive, but I'm always open to changing my mind. I thought the French were rude, and they were. First half a day I was there, and uh, then I said, I'm going to make these people like me. And the rest of the trip was marvelous. Everyone was gracious and charming and so on. I started talking about Norway. I needed a translator the first time I was there. 30 years go by, I go back, and I said to my host, Derek Broughton, where's uh, my translator? He said, you don't need a translator. You're in Norway. I said, I did last time I was here for you. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, well, listen to them now. And they all talk like valley girls. They had oh. learned English watching American sitcoms. TV, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's one of those things that if I hear it, and I still hear it every now and then, it, I my skin crawls from my scalp down. I can't stand that cadence. I just want to smack somebody. Yeah. Up at the end of every sentence. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. there's a couple other things about it I, I can't tolerate. And I, and I was t it's, we were watching something the other day, and they were all doing that. I said, Gigi, where did that start? And I guess it was on Family or one of those sitcoms in that era. Oh, no. And somebody must have talked that way naturally oddly and it picked up and now it's everywhere um, i hate to say this but i actually you know i always do a pre-interview for my podcast and 
I had a gal come on and she did that. And I, I had to say, I'm sorry. Your topic isn't just in, I didn't want to say you're driving me crazy, but I did say, <laughs> I'm sorry. The topic is just not going to be a big hit with my audience, but thank you so much. But I, I couldn't, I mean, I was flinching. I really was just, my skin was crawling. Yeah. Thank you so much. And bless your heart. Bless your heart. (laughs) And if we say bless your little heart, that means you're too stupid for it to ever wash off. You're stuck with it. (laughs) If anybody says that to you, just go, oh, okay, I got to go now and go. Being raised in the South of a lady, and that's a lady thing primarily. But if a lady thinks like says something like that, I protect my throat. My hand goes up to over my Adam's apple. <laughs> well, she's not going to take me down with one blow. She's going to have to chase me, and and uh, we'll turn this into a, a battle. But uh, in in my early early days in the South, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I thought it was a compliment because I used to hear it frequently. And then I found <laughs> out I found out why I heard it frequently. <laughs> Oh, listen, for for me, for the longest kind of time, because I was always very quiet. I was always listening. I was the only introvert in the entire family, immediate family, cousins, uncle. You know, nobody else was an introvert but me. And they would forget that I was there in the room and I knew everything. And every once in a while, I kind of let out something I knew and people just go, oh, geez, that damn Denise. I thought damn was my first name (laughs) for the longest kind of time. And that Denise was my middle name. I kid you not. It's a terrible thing what people do to children, (laughs) but I had it coming. I was listening. I wasn't a child, but I was a young man. I was visiting my aunt in Massachusetts and she was a southerner from Alabama, sister of my father but i came into the they had the gay family had interesting ways of teaching you lessons it was usually with sarcasm and i I walked into the breakfast room she said how are you this morning i said i'm nauseous and she said so many people have said that but what i want to know is how do you feel Don't mess with Southern women. Just <laughs> we listen. I have been. I've actually been accused of making people's ears bleed, and they're five miles away before they figured out I insulted them <laughs> so, in the kindest possible way. <laughs> but, you know, I and Ben. I mean, you are known for your storytelling ability, and part of it, I think, is because you're you are Southern. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite? success stories from your own career or from someone you've mentored? I mean, you've got some terrific stories and I'm going to get them all out of you, by the way. Well, maybe not today, but over time. Yeah. I'll tell you a quick one. Then we'll go back to Dean Garrison's piercing questions. My, uh, probably my favorite because it's the most, it's easiest for people to picture. And you have the book, I believe, don't let your past hold you back Mm -hmm. uh, by Lamont Bourne. Yeah. Your son. Yeah, he's our son, adopted, and uh, I always get a kick out of it when I recommend the book and somebody orders it, then they call back, and then I got the book, and I said, oh, great, have you read it? No, I'm just looking at the cover. Well, the cover they're looking at is, is Lamont. <laughs> and Lamont is black, it's and you're Lamont not. Is, yeah, he's as black <laughs> as you come, and I met him at Lompoc when he was right. 19 years old, did not graduate uh, high, he said he dropped out of high school. As I've told you, I doubted he'd ever dropped in. But uh, uh, as far as a success story, I 
just instinctively liked him. So I took him under my wing, got him in the public speaking class. He had a natural flair for it, helped getting his GED. Sometimes I'll say, I did this, I did this. Lamont did it all. I just, I'd been down the path. I worked at San Quentin for five years. So this wasn't my first rodeo, and I knew the problems. You know, 50% of the people in most prisons are illiterate. Uh, 50% of those have dyslexia uh, and so on. So it's a little hard to be successful in life when you can't understand, read, or write the language. And uh, so we tackled it from the bottom up. First was the GED, um, and then uh, when he got out, he called me by then I, we were mom and dad his mother and dad had passed and uh, and he'd been in a gunfight with his stepfather it was a little different background than i was used to at, at east lake country club in atlanta but uh, uh we helped him along and he called and he said dad i need a favor what's that i've decided to go to college well i couldn't believe it i mean this is the kid who was a fifth grade, ninth grade, whatever it was, dropout allegedly, got his GED. Uh, then now he wants to go to college. And I sort of took a deep breath. I thought I was through putting people through college. Well, as it turned out, all he wanted was a guarantee on his student loan. If I knew about student loans, what I'd do today, I probably would have sent him in a different direction, but I didn't. But we signed. I never had to pay a dime. He graduated from college. Took him maybe an extra year. A, he was working full time, and B, um, he wasn't used to studying in the traditional sense. And then a few years after that, he called and he said, "Dad, I got a favor." And I said, "How much is this one going to cost me?" The first one didn't cost me anything, but it seemed like a clever thing to say. He said, "Nothing. I just need a student loan." I said, "You already did that." And he said, "No, no, I'm going to law school now." And uh, so he did graduated, became a successful attorney in a rather large practice where he'd worked in the mailroom before he got his, or as he was getting his college degree and became an attorney with him. And he now has offices in Los Angeles, uh, Dallas, and Washington, in or near Washington, D.C., and is doing great. And he called the other day, a few months ago, I don't know, time flies by, and said, Dad, I need a favor. And I said, my God, what's left? And he said, oh, this isn't, this isn't a guarantee. This is a letter of recommendation. I'm, up, I'm being nominated for a new court the federal government is setting up, a youth court. And I'm going to serve as a judge. So when you say, you know, what's the most inspirational from a young man, 19 years old, in a parking lot, with no education, to a GED, to a college, to a law degree, to a successful practicing attorney, to a federal judgeship. Uh, that's probably, it's typical of many things that occurred during those 11 years where I worked in and around prisons. But his was probably the most dramatic because I'm pale white, he's dark black. Um, I'm semi-educated, if only through experience. He wasn't educated at all. And I fortunately bumped into me because having worked for five years at uh, San Quentin, once a week for 12 hours, an encounter-type seminar, scared straight 
from Rawway State Prison, but in reverse, young white millionaire comes in once a week and terrifies the inmates. And uh, we went, that was called People Builders, and we went from a 68% when I walked in rescission rate, meaning you're, you're released from prison, 68% of them were back in custody within two years. In People Builders, uh, when they walked in the door the first night, had the same 68% recidivism rate. When they graduated and had been out long enough, they, we graduated them every 12 weeks, and some of them stayed for the whole time. Others did their 12 weeks and might have stayed one more session or so. But when we they'd been out long enough to track them, the recidivism rate among them was not 68%. It was less than 5%. Wow. So I found that it's easier. This is an old cliche, but it's so true. It's easier to prevent a, a, a young child from going down the wrong path than it is to repair a broken man and or woman. 99% of my work was in the male prison system. And uh, but the the results there are so dramatic. I had a young man who had a disfiguration on his face. Uh, Jerry Matthews was his name. I doubt he's listening. A lot of time has gone by, but if Jerry's listening, uh, no, Jerry, I still think of you. Jerry's disfiguration was as a young boy living in the slums of Chicago. A rat got into his baby pen and ate his nose oh. and uh, he was oh. un uneducated and and so on so at his graduation i don't remember if it was the first 12 weeks or he stayed longer before he did this for me at his graduation his present to me on television because the cameras would come in to do a graduation ceremonies frequently as a present to me he got up opened up a book and read it out loud. And so you, you got the, the dramatic changes and inspiration. You have the Lamont Bournes of the world. You got the Jerry Matthews of the world. I had people who had, uh, and, and some had been successful, went astray and got back on track as a result of it. But whenever I'm asked what's the most important work you've done, it's all very similar. I, I taught at Lompoc and San Quentin and the women's prison frontier for a while, just like I teach Kirby vacuum cleaner people or investment bankers how to sell. The, the technique is the same, but the, the uh, results are so much more dramatic when you start out beneath ground zero and they succeed because they were given the way. They weren't told. They didn't know it was an option. And the way I taught is sort of the way you and I talk blunt and straight up is uh, gentlemen i didn't make up the rules born into this society i'm glad glad i came in white it's easier i'm glad i came in an up, upper class neighborhood into educated family it's easier i'm glad i was raised two blocks out the front gate of east lake country club where all the success not all but most of the successful people in atlanta lived worked played and I got to associate with them, the chairman of the board of Coca-Cola, the founders of Home Depot, et cetera. They were just people that were my dad's friends, and I got to hang out and listen. All that makes it easier. But 
uh, Lamont Bowen is, is now far better educated than I am. Uh, he's traveled the world from the parking lot at Lompoc. Denise, I got a picture of him the other day on top of a camel in Dubai. He was there on business of some sort. And I thought, wow. my God, if I told that young man one day at Lompoc, uh, in a matter of a few years, you'll be a successful attorney riding a camel in Dubai. I don't, he would have had me committed, but, but there he was. And there's, yeah, you would have lost all credibility with him. He would not have been yeah. able to wrap his head around that. Yeah. Yeah. He would have thought I was nuts. So that's the most rewarding things I've done, but it's similar to what I do all day, every day in my mentoring program and so on. It's just a little more dramatic. You know, when a guy was one of my dear friends who led people builders uh, in prison and then unofficially out of prison was a guy named Joe Mack. I didn't meet him the first night I went to uh, San Quentin because he was on death row and along with a friend of his. And then it was unjust, but that's nevertheless where they were. Not that he was leading a good life, but he wasn't leading a death row life either. He got off death row, got life without possibility, fought, campaigned, and by then I knew him, fought, campaigned, et cetera, and uh, got it reduced to life. And on life, if you're doing good work, it can be as little as seven years. So we went from death row to life without possibility to life to he did seven years. And probably the most dramatic moment was uh, I used to do a lot of work at the Crystal Cathedral, Bob Schuler's church in Garden Grove, California. And one day I was down there. Frequently, I would talk about they always wanted to hear about the San Quentin experience. And they all had some favorite name they asked about because they'd heard a story about that person. And I got up in front of him on the altar and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been kind enough to follow my work at uh, uh, San Quentin. And you've been kind enough to write and support some of these people. Uh, do you all remember Joe Mack? Every hand in the room went up. I said, well, it's a long way from death row to the Crystal Cathedral. But I paced it off before you got here this morning. Let's turn and watch Joe Mack take his last 48 steps from death row to the altar at the Crystal Cathedral. And he almost tore the place down as Joe walked down the aisle. Um, so my type of work, your type of work, leads to moments like that. And I don't care how much money I've made or lost or have or don't have or what have you. That's really the payday. Jerry Matthews reading a book to me with no nose. Uh, Lamont riding a camel in Dubai and uh, Joe Mack coming off death row and being cheered at the Crystal Cathedral. Those are the paydays. And I've had hundreds of them, maybe thousands, but hundreds under sodium pentothal where I could come up with the names and dates. That's the payoff. You know, I'm, I'm actually a bit speechless, which is shocking me because that doesn't happen. Yeah. Often. What happened? Hello. You did. It's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm writing these names down because now, of course, I have to go look at them. I need to go look and see, you know, what the story was and what they're doing now, if they're doing anything now. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the other side of that coin since we're talking about prisons and you're working the prisons, Charles Manson. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You were nose to nose with Charles Manson, which I find just creepy as hell. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say it. He was, he was an odd little devil. Yeah, uh, he asked to meet me because from his cell, he could see me come and go, come every Friday night, go every Saturday morning. By happenstance, his cell across the gun rail through a little window in the wall focused right on the front door of the classroom that I used there. It was the Jewish chapel. So one day he asked to meet me. And uh, Terry Wooster, Lieutenant Terry Wooster, who was sort of the guy in charge of making my life easy in San Quentin, if everybody tried to screw with us or stop a movement, Terry would step in, tell him what the warden said and smooth the way. So he comes up to me one night as I walked in. He said, Ben, I got an inmate who wants to meet you. I said, well, as you know, I don't do house calls, so tell him to come uh, to the meeting. Anybody's welcome. He said, well, this one can't come. And I said, why is that? He said, well, he's in the adjustment center. The adjustment center is one step down from death row. Charlie originally got death. Uh, then it was reduced to, I guess, life without possibility of parole. And he died in prison a couple of years ago at age 80. But he said he can't come. And I said, well, how am I going to meet him? I had the full run of the prison, but I didn't go in the adjustment center just because it didn't cross my mind. Uh, and death row out of respect. I didn't think it was polite to go in and stare at people in cages who were just being held so they were put to death, which they used to do back then. They actually did execute people. And uh, he said, well, I'll set up a time and go up and meet him. So I went up to his cell three times, three hours each visit. Always went right after account and left right before account because if you're in a cell, uh, in the prison, an account doesn't clear. The whole prison is shut down. So I could have spent a day or two in Charlie's cell. I, even I didn't want to do that in anybody's cell, never mind Charlie Manson. So we set up the first meeting. I walk in. He was up on the fifth tier. I looked around. I could see the gun sight through, and that's a bad pun, but the gun sight through which he looked where he could see me. I said, oh, that's how we met, Charlie, right at that door. He said, yeah. I was fascinated by the crowd that greeted you and the crowd that walked you out. And he said, I'm a leader and I wanted to meet another leader. But what I noticed when I walked in, he had one book in his cell. It was on the upper bunk because he used that as a bookshelf. It was a one man cell designed for two. Seemed that nobody wanted to spend the night with Charlie Manson. No. <laughs> Can't see that. Yeah, you'd never get any sleep with one eye open. But uh, on that shelf, he had a couple extra pairs of pants and so on. And one book, not the Gideon Bible, not any of the stuff you might expect. One book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by uh, Dale Carnegie. Yeah. I said, what an interesting book selection. He said, yep, it's my Bible. Could not have built the Manson family without it. And there's a great example of... You can take something that is inherently either inert or good or bad and use it differently. You can take a gun and put it in a bookcase and look at it for 50 years, or you can get it out and protect your family and save lives, or you can kill somebody with it. And how I won friends, how to win friends and influence people was one of those inert objects. Many people have read it, become millionaires, led people to great success built their life around it. 
Charlie Manson used the same techniques to build the Manson family, get into Sharon Tate's place and kill a bunch of people and into the LaBanca home and kill a bunch of people. But Charlie said he couldn't have done it without the lessons in the book. And finishing up on that, because people find Charlie semi-fascinating, the... uh, I have told many people, I'm glad when I met Charlie, I was in my 30s, I get late 30s, early 40s, probably, um, and was rather solidified, you know, had the big house, the car, success, and so on. And uh, instead of 18 or 19 years old, wandering around in Haight-Ashbury, looking for myself, trying to find myself as the flower children were. Because that's where Charlie hung out. That's where he started the Manson family. And I can picture without a whole lot of imagination winding up in one of those houses doing something evil if I'd met him at the wrong time. And it's not some weakness in me. If anyone I've met had met him at the wrong time, Tex Watson, one of his co-conspirators, came from an upper middle class family, as did most of the people in the Manson family upper middle class family. He's a minister today in prison still, but a minister has done a great deal of good and was headed down the right path. He bumped into Charlie Manson one day in Ada Ashbury and everything came off the rails for him. So you asked for a dramatic story. I, in my opinion, that's semi-dramatic. It's yes, it is. Did he ever read your books? Do you know? No. Uh, I hadn't written them yet. I hadn't written a book um, when, I, when I met Charlie. Yeah, I would hate to have him find yeah. him a book covered, find him in a house covered with blood with the closers under his arm. Yeah, that uh, would suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might have cut into sales. Yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I'm still, I had guests over the weekend, you know, Labor Day, and we were talking about podcasts and talking about this, that, and the other. And I'm always surprised that I have friends who actually listen to my podcast. And one of my friends said, what is this about your friend Ben Gay and Charlie Manson? I went, that's a good question. I'm going to ask him again. (laughs) So here we are. But you have met some fascinating people, good people, bad people. Look, as far as Charlie Manson is concerned, I believe in evil. I really do. He was. Yeah. And how can he, you can't have done the things that he did and not be evil. Yeah, absolutely. And he was not physically imposing. He he yeah. always reminded me of Sammy Davis Jr. about that build and size and all little bitty guy. So he wasn't physically imposing, but he was mentally imposing. When he looked at you, you felt like he was looking in through the front of your eyes and out the back of your head uh, and piercing dark eyes. And he was crazy as a pet coon. However... Okay. He was he was not crazy. You know, Geraldo says he's forever talking about I've interviewed Charlie Manson and it was I looked death in the eye and so on. Well, first of all, he's surrounded by armed guards, so he didn't look anything in the eye. Uh, but a crazy person. And then Charlie did for him the Charlie Manson act, you know, booga 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 and cra- <laughs> you know, crazy stuff. Charlie was crazy, but he was evil crazy. One, right. one quick story about Charlie. When a guard is walking down the tier and doesn't want to you to know he's coming, he holds his keys 
so that when you realize he's there, he's there right in front of your cell. If he doesn't want to, let, let's say it's quarter to five and he's about to get off shift and wasn't, he doesn't want to do any more paperwork. <laughs> he, he, right, not only doesn't hold on to his keys, he rattles them and shakes them. So you'll stop doing whatever you're doing so he can go home. <laughs> it's, it's like traffic cops will let <laughs> almost anything go if it's five minutes before the end of their shift. You have to run over a little lady in a wheelchair before they would stop. If you just got a light out or you're speeding, probably they'll just look the other way and go check out. So uh, we're talking and uh, I hear the keys rattle and I'm signaling because I knew that I'd been there for two or three years before I ever met Charlie. I signaled him and he, Charlie shook his head and he said, excuse me, when the guy got in front of our cell in front of charlie's cell charlie got up ran over to the cell grabbed the bars and went booga, 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 you know, did the whole thing by then he had the swastika carved in his head and the guard never looked up he just kept walking he said hi charlie how are you oh and then charlie sat back down and he said they just love that that's, that's the crazy he promoted that's the crazy geraldo rivera thought he saw that wasn't the problem. The problem was plotting and scheming to talk normal people into going to houses and killing people. And there are some of us, me included, who don't believe they found all the bodies yet. Out at the Spawn Ranch where they hung out, I really believe that some infrared heat-seeking whatever X-ray machines could turn up another several bodies. But we know about the LeBlancas and the Sharon Tate friends. Those are the only ones we know about. He wasn't nuts for two nights in his life. He was nuts for a long time. Chances are he was born like that. Evil is, being yeah. sad every like, evil is born. Yeah, I, I agree with you. However, there's a picture, you can probably Google it and find it, Boys Nation. I assume they're still in business. Boys Nation was a charitable organization that helped young men. I don't know if it was if they were already in trouble or just young men, but whatever, Boys Nation did a lot of good. And there's a picture of Charlie Manson at the White House shaking President Truman's hand. Now, yeah. if, you know, if you know in groups like Boys Nation or the Boy Scouts or so on, the best of the best are the ones that get picked to go to ceremonial occasions, the White House and and so on. They don't take Doofus, who's not yet shaped up and is still a problem. They don't take him to the White House. So he was good enough, smart enough, able to fake it enough, whatever, to get through all the barriers and represent Boys Nation at the White House with President Truman. I did not know that. Yeah, it was interesting. I didn't know it either, and I think he's the one that told me. You know, I haven't always been bad. Have you seen that picture of me with President Truman? With who? Yeah, you've been bad. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to sell you something. Yeah. Jeez. Let's do a couple of Dean uh, Garrison's questions. Yeah, just come back because, to that. Uh, He was nice enough to write in and ask, and so on. Uh, these are therapy ones for me because here's three that I'm not terribly proud of. He asked me in so many words, and I'm paraphrasing, looking at rough notes. Have you ever been caught being dishonest in selling? Yes. 
I probably should have been caught a few more times than I was exaggerating earnings and so on in the early days of multi-level marketing and so on. It turned out to all be true. I was just ahead of the curve when I was making nothing. I was said I was making 10000 a month when I was making ten. I said I was making twenty, and so on. Rucker and I got to the point where we were making forty thousand a month, and in nineteen mid sixty dollars, that's four hundred thousand a month now. And Rucker said, "What are we going to say next?" I said, well, "There's no place left to go. Let's just quit talking about how much money we made." It all came true, but we were always thirty sixty days ahead of the curve in those early days. So I'm not terribly proud of that, but I would call that no harm done since it all came true. But uh, one that was just horrifying to me, I've actually had a few nightmares over the years about this. It comes to mind in the middle of the night. I was working as a manufacturer's rep, uh, selling plastic dishware and, and barbecue grills and all sorts of things, traveling throughout the Southeast. And we got a new product. It was a hairspray really good hairspray that you could retail for 88 cents and buy it, keystone it, buy it for 44 cents, sell it for 88. And it was, I thought, a very hot item and a good, and my, my mother and sister and girlfriend, whoever used it and they all loved it. So I knew it was a good product. So I called on, I think the name was Harris Teeter. They were a big grocery chain in the Southeast. And I knew just enough to be dangerous because my father was a food broker and I'd worked events and conventions and briefly for him and so on. So I knew a little bit of the food broker talk. Little background. Every Wednesday, my father had lunch with the head buyer for Big Apple, Alterman Brothers in Atlanta, the, the uh, Alterman family in the head. The lead brother was George Alterman, who dad liked. They at least respected each other. But George had a, uh, a secretary, executive assistant named Sybil. I never knew her last name, but Sybil. And dad, uh, he wasn't a hater, but he hated Sybil. <laughs> At dinner, I've heard the latest thing Sybil did many, many times. So now I'm at Harris Teeter and I'm telling about this hairspray and this was well, anybody else in our line of work bought it yet? And I said, oh, yes. Uh, Big Apple. Uh, they bought uh, uh, several truckloads, which is funny. If, if I'd really sold them several truckloads, I would have known the amount, the number of cases. And so you don't buy by the truckload. You might happen to fill up a truck, but it still has a number of cases within it that filled it. So, oh, yes, uh, several truckloads to Big Apple. Uh, perhaps, you know, uh, the Alterman brothers in uh, Atlanta. And he said, oh, yes, yes. And they bought. And I said, yes. Now, he's got my business card. He's got the sample of the hairspray on his desk. He leans over to an intercom, punches it and says uh, whatever his secretary's name was. He said, uh, we'll call her Eleanor. Eleanor, get Sybil on the phone in Atlanta, Georgia's <laughs> office. And he and he says, excuse me, I've, I've got to run to the restroom. And he got up and walked out of the office. Thank God. I grabbed my business card. I grabbed the samples. I scanned the office. It was any other sign that I had been there. And I scampered down the hall, got in my car and drove away. Because it was a total lie. And my only concern to this day, but I, I assume he's dead, <laughs> My only concern to this day is my name, Ben Gay, and I'm Ben Gay the Third. is easy to remember. 
So for dinners for a year or two after that, if I was with my parents, I waited for dad to say, do you ever call on Harris Teeter? But it, to my knowledge, it never got back to him. I would assume the buyer would have said, well, his name was Ben Gay, nice young man. And I suspect he knew I was lying. I can't imagine asking a question like that and then going to the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think he was giving me an excuse or an opportunity to escape. <laughs> you got rumbled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was absolutely, I got no justification. That was absolutely dishonest, a total lie. It wasn't on the table five seconds before he called me on it. And if he'd said, get Eleanor on the phone, I would have sat there like a big dope. But when he said, get Sybil on the phone, I thought, this is bad news. This is the Sybil I hear about once a week. <laughs> so it father. scared you straight, in other words. It, it did. Yeah, it did. I made did mistakes ever... in selling, but that's that's the only, that was yeah. the last time that I just looked somebody dead in the eyes and lied to them. I'll bet. Did you ever find out why your daddy hated Sybil? Just the way she was. Uh, she was apparently the doorkeeper. That I don't think he used that term in those days, but the doorkeeper from hell. And she thought she was an Alterman brother and that she could speak for George and so on. Sweet ending to that story. When my dad died, he died young uh, at age 60, put his head down on his desk and uh, was gone when the secretary came back in. I'm, I'm standing in the church. Dad's coffin is there. He's going to be cremated. And I feel a tap on my shoulder, and there's George Alterman, who I'd met a few times at trade shows, so I knew who it was. And he said, you know, I'm sorry, and blah, 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 and we hugged each other. And uh, he said, Ben, I've got something I want to put in the coffin. Do you mind? And I said, no. What is it? He said, well, and he held it up. It was an order pad with a pen clip to it, an Alterman Brothers order pad with a pen clip to it. He said, I don't know if your father ever told you, but he called on me every Wednesday and we had lunch. Uh, but he didn't have to because he had the power of the pen. If he thought we should have it, he could just write up the order. He was an authorized signature and ship it to us. And and he said on a rare occasion when he did it, uh, he had the decency to tell me it was coming, but he didn't have to ask permission. And I said, wow, I don't think he ever mentioned that. He said, well, uh, I can tell you now because we don't do that anymore. Your dad is the last person to ever have the power of the pen. And he placed the order pad in the pen uh, on uh, where dad's belt was in the coffin and said, you know, something rest well or whatever <clears throat> and went away. I thought, what a great I actually am wiping my tears on my yeah. cap. So that's the, an amazing uh, story. Yeah. And when I die, I don't think the hairspray guy from Harris Teas is going to show up and say the same thing to my son. I think he said, <laughs> I, I, I just came to see if that SOB is really dead. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> that's an amazing story about your dad. I had not heard that before. And, and yeah. thank you for sharing it. Well. It was, as you may have heard, I choked up when I was telling you. I know, but, I was choking up with you. Yeah, it was neat. Uh, and then Dean Garrison said, what did you ever sell that was wrong to sell? And both of these are, because I only sell quality products that are competitively priced, 
to qualified people. That's one of my secrets of having an 86% closing rate. But there were two where I was just wrong. I didn't know any better. I thought they were wonderful. One was a lawnmower called the Foley Quad Cut. And it, an engine, but it was 42 inches wide instead of 36 at the biggest you've ever seen a rotary mower. This is 42 inches wide. Well, this is the first time this has happened, but our show just unexpectedly ended before Ben could finish his story. So we'll make sure to pick up where we left off next week. And in the meantime, please do stay connected with us on LinkedIn and Facebook. And as always, we value your questions and your insights, and we will do our best to address them on the show when time allows. You can also download and listen to this podcast wherever you consume your favorite shows. Just look for your partner in Success Radio with Denise Griffiths and Ben Gay III. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the internet without hitting this show, and we thank you for your continued support. We will see you next week.